Welcome to Dig Deep, the mining podcast. In this podcast, we go deep into mining news, hot topics, and live interviews with mining professionals and leading figures in the mining industry. Introducing your host, Rob Tyson, founder and director of Mining International and Mining International Executive, a leading global mining recruitment and headhunting agency. Hi, mining community. Welcome back to another episode of the Dig Deep, the mining podcast. And today's guest is Rick Davis, who is a specialist and expert in native title within the mining industry. With a wealth of experience spanning over 20 years, he understands native title at state and federal level, covering exploration, mining, infrastructure, and has expertise in Aboriginal land. Rick prides himself on a can-do, common-sense approach to cooperative, cooperative development, and is here today to give our listeners a wider understanding of native title, um, common issues, and how to best overcome these challenges. Um, and also give you some hints and tips to successfully negotiate these agreements um, that you may be involved in, either now or in the future. So that's welcome, Rick, to the podcast. How are you doing, Rick? Oh, hello there, Rob. Pleasure to be with you. Yeah, and yourself. Appreciate you. Uh, appreciate you taking the time to um, give our audience an overview of obviously on native titles. So, um, how you obviously start these podcasts? I wonder if you can um, give our audience an overview of yourself. Um, give the audience a little bit uh, about. Uh, give them um, a little bit about your career, so they know where you've come from, how you got into the mining industry, and perhaps something that they may not know about you for those that actually do know you. So um, I hand it over to you. No worries. Okay, thank you, Rob. Uh, well, uh, look, it's been it's been a heck of a journey to get where we are now. So I'm, I'm calling to you from Perth, Western Australia. Um, I grew up in the southeast of England, in, in Kent, um, Ashford, Channel Tunnel country. Um, and uh, look, I guess it's fair to say, uh, I don't think I was, I did particularly um, great at school. Um, and I kind of ended up getting into geology uh, almost by a process of elimination, um, got to A-levels, and I could give you a long list of subjects that I didn't enjoy, uh, and then working down the list, no, 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 and then there was geology, which I hadn't done, and I thought, well, we'll give that a, give that a crack. Um, and it sparked an interest, mo- most definitely. Um, g- got through my A-levels, again, not, I guess it, it wasn't great, but you were looking at then um, further education, um, back then, this is so in the late late eighties. Um, you know, the criteria for a uni at that time was how far away from home is it. Um, uh, and I'm going through the list. Uh, and there was a, a college called Camborne School of Mines, um, uh, which invited me for uh, an interview. Um, in hindsight, I mean, I'm just enormously grateful for it. I I didn't get the grades that would have got me into a uni um, at, uh, in this day. Um, but at that time, uh, Campbell offered me a place on a, a mining geology diploma. Um, and I remember they said to me, now, if we if we let you in, you don't have to work. Um, but if you don't work, we'll just kick you off the course. So it's up to you. Uh, and no one had kind of treated me like that before. Uh, and I thrived on it. I, I, I love my time at Campbell. It was, it was um, uh, I, I think, you know, perhaps an era where there was quite a few of us ended up at Campbell and kind of by that route. Um, but it was it was hands on. It was supportive. We learned about drilling holes by drilling holes. I learned about blowing things up by blowing things up. Um, and two years later, I came out with a first class um, diploma. Um, 
Next step was a degree, um, but I actually moved up to Cardiff University for that. Um, and the, the reality is Campbell was great, but it was um, a mining college of um, 300 guys. Um, and I remember my tutor saying, oh, you're going to go to Cardiff to meet your wife, are you? Um, uh, ho, ho, ho. And that's exactly what happened. So I went to Cardiff, did a geology degree, um, met my wife, Sue, um, and uh, did a master's there as well. Um, but Campbell was was the formulative years, most definitely. I mean, the stuff I learned there back then, I, I still use now every day. Um, uh, I then, you know, he graduated, and it was a bit of a, a shock horror moment of realizing that in the early 90s in the UK, there actually weren't jobs for geologists. And it was, felt kind of duped, you know, that I, I'd done the hard yards, got the, got the qualification, and there's no job at the end of it. Um, so I came out to Australia as a backpacker. Um, like many people did with with Sue. Um, and it was really with the aim of, you know, look, you'll probably get a job. There's mining out there. I knew about it. But if not, hey, you're going to have a great year. Um, came to Perth and uh, um, I'd been here a week and just I remember phoning my mum saying, I'm not coming back. Just, oh, my goodness. It just just knocked me for six. Blue sky, um, friendly people, beautiful landscapes uh, and opportunity. You know, real opportunity. If you if you if you want to work, you're going to get a job. Um, so I pretty much walked up and down St George's Terrace in Perth, handing out my CV, knocking on doors, um, and after two weeks, I got uh, that important first job, um, uh, uh, and it was as a uh, pit geologist in a place called Kew in the Midwest, a mining geologist. Now, <laughs> I went out for the uh, the interview. Um, you have to understand at this time I've been you know, living as a backpacker, so I'm kind of eating wheat bix for a week, um, flown up to this mine site on a little four-seater plane, and they invite me into the, the mess, and you have some breakfast, and this is like manna from heaven. You know, there's food everywhere, and I'm starving, but I can't, you know, I'll just have an egg, I'll have some beans and a bit of toast. Oh, this is lovely. My stomach's screaming out for more. Um, anyway, I, I got the job, um, uh, and... By my own like, uh, confession, you know, I, I didn't have the experience. I'm, I made the mine manager stop the car on the first day of work so I could take a picture of a kangaroo, and it was a dead run at the side of the road. I'm sure they thought I was just mad. But um, I found out in hindsight it was um, I, I didn't come with, you know, I, I, could, I could be taught to do things the, um, the, the way that, that the company wanted things to be done. Um, that was the first job. It was a stepping stone, and I did that for... Um, a year back to the UK, applied to emigrate. Um, there's a story there that took a while, um, about 18 months. And in that period, I worked uh, offshore, oil and gas in the North Sea, like many others, um, and geotechnical engineering work, um, site investigation work, essentially. Um, whereas in Australia, you're looking for gold. In you know, London, I was looking for cyanide pits in Tottenham. Um, same kind of methods, just not, not quite as sexy. Um, Came back to Australia in 98, that's when I emigrated and, and was straight back to the mines as a pit geo. And I really enjoyed that work. It was technically challenging, um, interesting. Um, uh, and again, I, I, I think I thrived on it and I loved the, the, the outback life and the adventure of it all. It's a, it's a great job for a young person. Um, uh, but mining is this boom-bust economy and we see it all the time. And come uh, 2000, um, I, uh, like many others on the site I was on, there was 112 of us were, were laid off and had to go and get another job. Um, so at this point, I'm kind of thinking, well, what do I do? Uh, it, 
that is there something that's not so dependent on this boom bust? And I was thinking maybe GIS, um, you know, similar skills, but you know, tell Telstra, the police, utility companies, they all need GIS. I was thinking about that, and then um, saw a job in the the newspaper with a, an Aboriginal land council, and and it said exploration and mining. And I thought I knew that. Applied, um, went for the uh, interview, um, and uh, yeah, I mean I. <laughs> I, I got the job, and again, I kind of thought against all the odds. When I walked in, there was um, um, uh, the person before me was a lawyer who was um, doing the Midwest region of WA at a, at a really dynamic time. When I joined the organization, there were four staff, and when I left six years later, there were over 100. And it was when the next boom kicked off um, in uh, the iron ore boom. So I was dealing with everyone there from... Um, uh, kind of one man in a wheelbarrow up to the big uh, the big mining companies uh, in the Midwest and the Pilbara. Uh, and my job there um, was was simply, it was to give, it was, well, two things. It was negotiating low-level um, exploration agreements, and I'll, we'll get into that a bit more later, um, but also to give uh, mining technical input into negotiations. Um, so the, the framework here is that there's, there's, there's a statutory process and for mining, there are negotiations that take place between mining companies and, and indigenous groups in Australia. And there's quite particular rules around that. Um, but what I, I guess what I've found is that um, negotiations were um, driven by lawyers um, who know a lot about law but knew nothing about mining. Uh, and I see it even now. I, I think there's still a bit of a, a there's a, there's an, a gap and a need to be filled there. So my job was to give technical input into negotiations. And it, it kind of sounds a bit odd, but back in those days, it was there was a little bit of, you know, sit at the back of the room and tell us when they're lying. Uh, and, and surprisingly, um, quite a few companies were not being entirely truthful back then. So it was uh, uh, my role was, I guess, to um, help inform, uh, inform that process. So, so informed decisions that have been are being made. But like I said, look, it was a really dynamic time. There was a lot of opposition to native title in the early days. Um, it's, it's a highly political area. Um, and um, uh, I, I guess I was one of the few mining people working with indigenous groups. There's a, there's a lot more of that, of that now. I mean, yeah, Sam Walsh the other day, former CEO of um, uh, Rio Tinto, has just joined the board of an Aboriginal corporation in the Pilbara. Um, so I, I kind of got to see it warts and all from a, 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 an early process of, um, uh, look, I guess it was, it was difficult and it was contentious and it's certainly not plain sailing now, but it, it's, it's a lot different 20 years later to what it was, to what it was back then. But look, it's been, it's been an awesome adventure. Um, uh, uh, there's certainly never a dull moment and, and I'm enormously grateful for it. Yeah. Um, thanks for obviously giving us uh, your background. Um, obviously, you're, you're a specialist in uh, native title, and obviously it's quite a unique area of work um, that you're involved in. Can you sort of give us a, a typical um, overview of your typical week at work? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, well, first of all, this is my office. Um, um, thank you, technology. Um, so I, I, I work from home. Um, uh, that said, a typical week, um, there's kind of never a typical week, but let me give a, a broad overview of the things that I'm doing. So um, uh, first of all, native title for those 
people, um, uh, I guess people don't know what that is. It's it's a it's a statutory process in Australia. Um, it comes out of a legislation that that, ha that came about in '93. People would have heard of Eddie, Eddie Marbo and the Marbo case. And what that said is that um, uh, that that there that the law of the land is able to recognise a pre-existing title, pre-colonisation in Australia. So it wasn't uh, an, an empty land. There were there were societies and rules in place, and it and allows for a, a recognition of that. And you know, in in one sense, I've said. Uh, people think of native title as, as a scary word. Um, uh, the actual reality of it, it's, it's, it's a form of title, and there are many forms of title in Australia. So the native title process allows for Indigenous groups, and I, like I said, there's strict rules around this, but for Indigenous groups to, first of all, identify uh, or, uh, a particular area. Um, there's a claim process that goes through the courts, and that might take 10, 20 years. And, and where I come in is that it creates procedural rights for groups. So where you have this intersection of the mining industry and uh, Indigenous land rights in Australia is that if companies want to do certain things, they there are um, rights afforded to Indigenous groups. And it's kind of like a sliding scale. At the, at the lowest level, um, exploration, um, there are, there's notification rights, there's, there's limited objection rights for groups. Um, Going up the scale, there's there's rights to consult, and at the highest level, mining, there's a, a mandatory um, right to negotiate um, uh, um, in respect of, of, of new developments. It, there's no right of veto. That's that's an important point, though. So there's there are processes, but there's no indigenous groups don't have the right to say no. So in the native title side of things, my involvement is I'm often uh, I'm working with. Um, uh, uh, look, I said I work mostly with mining companies. I also work with a couple of indigenous groups, um, but it's mostly I'm working as part of a team um, that would involve lawyers and um, that would involve mining specialists, and it's and it's um, uh, negotiating and brokering um, agreements. Exploration is kind of you know there's some there's some uh, precedence there. Um, mining uh, are more on a sort of a case by case basis, so it's it's very it's very dynamic. It's it's not it's not a so it's not a sausage machine mentality. There's there's varied projects, varied timelines, varied groups, um, but essentially trying to broker agreements um, between mining companies and indigenous groups. Uh, the heritage side of things, Aboriginal heritage, um, is a is a, a big part of the work that I do, um, and there is an interlinking of those two processes. But again, in, in very broad terms, in Australia. Um, there are there's obviously um, Aboriginal heritage sites, uh, and they are everywhere. Is the simplest way I can put it. Um, uh, um, and land use has the potential to impact on those. And by impact, you know that's a nice way of saying disturb, destroy, interfere. You know it can cause damage to these areas. And uh, for whatever reason, the, the the legislation in Australia is not perceived to protect. Heritage. So, indigenous groups use the native title process in part to broker higher levels of heritage protection than the than the law allows or the law provides for. And it's 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 pretty common sense stuff. It's like um, before you go and build that track or go and drill those holes, can you please? We want to check the area, and if there's area, if there's places of concern. Can you move your track? Can you move your holes? And at the expiration level, I mean, consistently, that's um, 
uh, that's something that, that companies can do. It's, it's not hard. Um, uh, like I said, not, not rocket science, but this is when I started in this, this, this kind of engagement just didn't happen. So um, heritage surveys, as we call them, um, the, the actual act of going out with a in group of indigenous people, um, and uh, it's often where it's mostly walking the land. You might be out in helicopters. You might be out for a day or two. You might be out for a couple of weeks. Um, big part of my work, and it's the, the bit that I absolutely love. Um, it's kind of seasonal because um, there's some places which are hotter than Satan's underpants out here in the summer, and it's you just don't want to be out there. It's, um, it's, it's a very unpleasant experience. So uh, at the moment, it's winter in Australia. Um, bruh. Uh, so field season, we've got lots of surveys going on at the moment. I'll be off again in a couple of weeks. And that part of the work, um, like I said, I, I, I love it. I have never been on a heritage survey where we haven't found something. Um, uh, 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 there, there's stuff everywhere, which is kind of not surprising if you've got 60,000 years of history. Um, the kind of things that, that, that we find out in the field, um, artifact scatter is probably the most common thing. Um, uh, where people have used, I, I kind of think people have been the geologists of the day, you know, using what resources were available for the best purpose at that time. So a lot of stone tools, stone tool quarries. Um, and this isn't like, I'm not talking a couple of rocks here and there. When when you hit a, a quarry site, I'll digress a minute. They, there's, there's a particular rock um, rock characteristics that are favoured. It's, it's, it's what's called a conchoidal fracture. It's that curved break that um what does it glass does it um uh, uh hematite does it well that's too hard to break by hand often um dolerite does it basalt so these particular rocks um if you've got a, a rock that, that breaks in a clean predictive way chalcedony is another one um you find that these areas have been um quarried uh and there are offcuts and uh, essentially um, worked blades as, and tools uh, and there can be there could be thousands, probably hundreds of thousands. Some I think I've been to where there's probably millions of, of artifacts. They're interesting. They're, the blades are quite long, and when you tap them together, they kind of make a metallic chink, uh, very characteristic. And I could almost spot an artifact scattered with my eyes closed sometimes. You can be walking across the ground, crunch, 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 chink, 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 when you change into the different types of rocks. So um, artifact scatters uh, galore. Um, Engravings, obviously, are common. Um, paintings in some parts, um, uh, in some parts of the of the country. Um, water sources, uh, rock shelters, um, rock shelters with artifacts in them. You know, combinations of things. Uh, and then there's the what? Are, there's what's the intangible heritage? I suppose there's the heritage that I could pick up, touch, look at, take a photograph of. And then the intangible is more around the. Um, not so much the archaeological, the ethnographic um, uh, stories, mythology, landscape features that that have some meaning that to to I guess your normal eye you wouldn't see anything you wouldn't see, but there's a narrative associated with that. So it's really um, uh, there's a lot out there, and it's not all. It's not that I can just go into a register and show me all the sites. That just doesn't that just doesn't um, exist. I mean, there is a register, but it's incomplete and inaccurate. The way to, to check these things is to go out with people and have a look. And it's kind of where, um, uh, I guess, uh, I think I love that part of the job is because it's where you're building relationships, you're making friends with people, and uh, and that then that knocks into other parts of um, 
you know, a project success, success or otherwise, um, that that um, uh, the, the support of the local community, I suppose. Yeah. What are some of the big biggest challenges that mining companies face around native title? Obviously, you're involved in it day in, day out. But what do you see some of the, the mining companies that may not be able to get their head around or challenges that they don't necessarily see as, as clear cut? Um, and obviously, you sit in, the, sit in the middle trying to advise mining companies around certain issues. Yeah. Um, so I, I think part of it is 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 perception. I mean, and, and even even the question is saying, what are, you know, what are the challenges with native title? I, I kind of look at it another way. You know, no one's you know, saying, what are, well, what are the opportunities with native title? Where, where, where are the, um, the benefits there? And I think some savvy companies have, have, have worked that out, that, they're, that they're, you actually see it in a different light. Uh, I, I think it's, um, uh, <laughs> someone said to me when I first started in this job, it's a difficult job to get a taxi in. And I, you know, what, what does that mean? It's like, well, you'll find out. You get in a taxi. What do you do, mate? And you say what you do. And I tell you what, I've I've had that many um, five o'clock morning cab ride conversations that I really was not in the mood for, um, because there's this perception like it's 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 native title. It's something I don't know why. So it's something negative. Um, uh, Look, I, I suspect there's 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 an element of the industry, and there is an industry around it, which is um, kind of like you know the tire kicker, like oh, big problem, mate. Oh, geez, it's going to cost you, but you know I think I could sort it out for you. It's actually so. The initial thing is perception. I think that's what people need to get past. And and actually, you know, uh, I've had companies uh, contact me before and say, well, we've got this issue, we've got this problem, and what what should we do? And I said, well, have you spoken to people? And they go, oh, do you think we should? And I go, well, yes, <laughs> yeah. Just go out and actually meet people on their own turf. And it's a different environment. It's, it's certainly, there's different sort of social norms at play. And it's not, you know, if you're used to having meetings in a, in a, in a boardroom, it can, uh, it can, I guess, you know, it, it can be pretty confronting to go and have a meeting under a bow shed where you're using the, the side of a Land Cruiser uh, as a whiteboard. But get out and talk to people and actually look people in the eye and say, uh, you know, this is, this is where we're at. This is what we're wanting to do. These are our concerns. And, and hear, hear from people what their concerns are. I, I think look, my experience is when people actually get out and get face to face, that's where um, problems, if, you know, for want of a better word, that's where they get solved by talking to people. So I actually think a lot of it, there's a fair bit of fear mongering uh, in, in, you know, to put WA in the Perth bubble of, of of this big scary thing, but my experience is when you actually get out and and talk to people, person to person, and start to build a relationship, that's where the barriers break down or you know solutions solutions are found. Uh, look, gosh, may, maybe for some people it's easy to say, look, we'll just get the the lawyers to go and deal with that. There's look, there's going to be opposing views. I'm I'm sure. My view is. Um, uh, if you're building a relationship, it's kind of like, um, I don't know, if you're going out on your first date or uh, or even you're going to, just going to see your local council, if you walk in with an army full of lawyers or even just send your lawyers, it's kind of not, I don't know that that's sending the right message that you're here to um, here to, to cooperate, uh, work together, to listen, all of those things. Um, and I also, I also think that people in the mining industry do this really well. I, I've seen this with geos in particular. Um, 
I think there's an a, there's a an affinity there with Indigenous people in that both uh, are looking beyond just the landscape. You know, the geologist is looking you know, beyond what you just what what you can see. You know, what's under the ground? What what's the bigger story? And uh, there's that affinity with the land. So I've actually found that um, geos in particular communicate really well with Indigenous groups. Kind of talk the same language. Um, uh, 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 and a, and a welcome. Uh, it's that groups will judge you on um, deeds, not words. You know, absolutely, that's the best way I can put it. Um, so get out, um, talk to people. Uh, it doesn't mean you're going to be instant best friends, but um, it's it's about the relationship. That's that's the most important thing. That's the best thing I can say. I suppose it's about reducing conflict as well. The reduction of conflict, like you said, if there's an army, if you're walking into any meeting or into a building with lawyers, then there's that intention, like you said, the perception, there's that intention. Um, so it's, it's breaking those, breaking down those barriers um, yeah, there to discuss hmm. issues, um, not going in fully, fully handed to, um, to say, right, this is, this is what we want to do and we're going to do it because we've got a lot of lawyers. Yeah, that's right. So I, I think the process kind of feeds itself at the moment. Um, certainly there's there's an element I, uh, that I believe there's a vested interest in that conflict on, on both sides, I, I'd say that. So why solve the problem when you can argue about it? Um, but equally, if, you know, if, if one group goes in with lawyers, you know, they might say, well, they've got their lawyers there and, and well, they've got their lawyers and it kind of feeds off itself. And it's not to say, you know, of course, there's absolutely yeah, a place for lawyers. All I'm I'm saying is I think it's 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 a it's too lawyer heavy um uh, that 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 it's at the point now you're that often the the very first dealings you'd have with a group is is lawyer to lawyer and it's kind of you know um lawyers at 60 paces I don't think that's a that's a great starting point um yeah you know, pro- probably not a great starting point as well is to actually have your first meeting when you need something or you want something um uh uh, the group, the, the companies that I think are, are, uh, have been successful are the ones who are uh, regularly meeting with the groups, um, even if there's actually nothing to say or nothing going on. It's just, you know, hi, how are you going? We're just letting you know nothing has changed since we saw you last time to maintain that communication. So when it does come to actually, um, you know, uh, advancing a particular project, people know you. Um, hopefully they like you, they support you, they want you to be there. You're not that other company who came in with its 10 lawyers last week demanding this or that. Um, uh, I, I guess, look, I don't think it, it doesn't have to have to be like that. It's, it, it's just, it, I think it's quite basic building that relationship and not to be scared of the process. Um, um, you know, people in the UK say to me, um, you, know, you work with Aboriginal people, what are they like? As well, you know, two arms, two legs, kind of, kind of like us, really, um, and, and that's that's the reality. Um, um, so I think it's important if you're going, if you're working out on indigenous land, um, go out and meet with people and and get an understanding of the world in which in which they're living. Yeah, um, and it will be it will be to your benefit. Um, obviously, you mentioned your role with the Aboriginal Land Council back in two thousand. Um, how were you actually received then as a mining professional working in, in the field back then? Uh, it was yeah interesting time. Um, that, uh, w- 
Okay, so there's two sides. When I first met with Indigenous groups, I'm in my first meeting out at Mount Magnet, um, uh, there was some wariness, um, partly because I'm the, you know, the English guy, for starters, um, uh, some wariness. Uh, I, uh, but that, you know, after a while, I think we got to become friends and, that was, and it was appreciated. What surprised me was how many Indigenous people were actually in the mining industry. Um, you know, so um, uh, prospectors and explorers in their own rights, and they'd come to meetings with you know, the nuggets they'd found last week and stuff like that. So um, th there was a level of understanding of, of, uh, uh, of the industry already there. But I think generally I was on that side, um, after initial wariness, I think I was mostly um, welcomed, and it, and it was, it, it, and it was um, you know, uh, we, we had a good, good work together. Industry was interesting. Um, I, I kind of think this is back in 2000. So uh, to give it some context, uh, what have we just been to then? The, the government of the day was was pretty um, aggressively anti-native title. Um, uh, the the mining industry lobby groups. It was on the on the back of what was called the Black Hand campaign, which was the the Chamber of Minerals and Energy over here, who now kind of you know um, uh, celebrate partnerships with indigenous groups and, and good for them um, but but back then i remember there was a campaign that had a um a black hand building a uh, a brick wall across western australia and a sign saying a warning keep out land under claim so there was a lot of scaremongering and here i was a geologist now working for an aboriginal land council um no one was ever down on me about that i i, I do think it raised um some eyebrows but it was something I was always happy to talk about. And I never saw it as like a couple of times people would say, oh, why are you working for the other side? Uh, and I've, I've never thought of it like that. I've never thought of it that I'm working for one side or the other. Like I say now, I work for mostly mining companies, but I work for a couple of indigenous groups. And, and in both roles, I'm kind of feel like I'm trying to do the same thing, which is, you know, solve a problem and, and get something, get a, a, a workable process in place. So I, I never saw it as as being on uh, on different sides. I was always happy to explain that. Um, it gave me an insight into a, a, a new part of the industry that I had no awareness of before when I was on site. And it's, I guess, what I call it. It's the, the politics of resource development. There was a whole other level of conversation, which I didn't realize what was going on. Uh, I remember one of, after one of my first meetings, um, I, got, um, I got picked up by the... Uh, the head of the mineral titles from the mines department said, I'll give you a lift back to the office. I thought, oh, that, that's nice of him. Um, it was actually to kind of, I think, quiz me in high school. And we're quite good friends now since. Um, uh, but uh, I think there was, you know, there's a geologist working for a land council. Um, was this, is this good? Or is this, or is this a, a threat or a problem? Um, and I, I firmly believe, like, having that knowledge within Indigenous groups is, uh, it can only be of, of, of benefit. Um, I've seen some others do it, but normally I think there's a there's kind of a crying need out there. Um, but look, now um, you know it's 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 easier to get a get a taxi in this line of work. Um, uh, that's for sure. But back then, yeah, it, it was an an interesting time. Look, the land council I worked with, there was just four of us there. I said when we started, and it was I was just lucky to work with a fantastic bunch of individuals. Um, the boss uh, was a lawyer called <laughs> a lawyer uh, called David Ritter, um, who's now um, uh, gone on to be CEO of Greenpeace out of um, Sydney. Um, there was the uh, the office mum, Lady Donna, 
um, who was an opera singer, who's now the remote hearings coordinator at the federal court. Uh, we also had an army of student volunteers, and many of those have gone on to, to very successful um, careers in this field over here. Um, uh, and it was just, it was, it was an exciting time to be around, and it was, it was a, you know, a, a dynamic and varied team. Um, I don't think I've ever worked harder in my, in my life, um, but uh, it, was, it was an exciting time to be in the industry. And I look back now, uh, you know, there's, there's been, there's, the things we were dealing with now, or oh, back then, I kind of roll my eyes out. It's like, gee, did that actually happen? Because it, it's, we've moved on a long way since then. Um, sorry, have I answered your question? <laughs> yeah, 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 you have. Um, I was going to, uh, my next question was, um, do you think there's a need for more mining professionals to move into this field? And I suppose, obviously, you've got a geology background. If a geologist, if a geologist is looking to maybe move change change careers slightly um is there certain attributes you feel that they need need to have or is there any particular interest they they need to have to sort of work in in your particular field um uh gosh yes yeah. so I, I is there a need absolutely i think there's a there's a a crying need now i'm on um you get those seek updates each day for um for jobs i you know my search criteria is native title and aboriginal heritage and uh, and there are there are jobs coming in every day um, over here in, in WA at the moment um, for those kind of roles, um, both with mining companies and also working with indigenous groups as well. I mean, we talked before about um, Sam Walsh um, going to a, an indigenous corporation. Ben Wyatt, um, former state treasurer, uh, is now one of Rio's new board members. I think that's symptomatic of that's almost, I guess, the crest of the wave of a, of a movement of industry people more into this field. Um, uh, I mean, what's critical, um, I, I think, at a, a level of, of, of experience, um, uh, I guess, in any job, just to be out and kicking the dirt so you know what it's actually actually about. I still think, you know, that the process is, is too lawyer heavy and that there's a gap particularly on the Indigenous side of, of those skills. So, uh, look, I don't know uh, so much what they're teaching at uni these days, but I'd like to think that there's an element of mining courses that is um, going into the sort of environment and social values and, and the requirement to engage with um, local people and how you do that, because people are going to have to do it. This is, this is part and parcel of, of, um, of being in this industry now. Um, and it's also a because it's a growing industry. So, like I said, when I was working at the land council, there was four staff initially. I left. There was a hundred. We were representing about twenty different Aboriginal groups, um, and those groups now have got their native title determinations. They've got court recognised rights. They've set up corporations. They've negotiated agreements. They've got some income coming in. They're setting up their own their own um, offices, employing their own staff. I mean, of those 28 groups we were representing back then, there's probably, um, I would say, 10 or more that have uh, are now entirely independent and would have maybe 20, 25 staff each. It's a, it's a growing, growing um, industry all the time. Um, I mentioned about the different groups we, we deal with. Just to put it in context, people think of Australia as a country, uh, and, and I, I, I look at it more as a continent. Um, uh, and in the same sense that in Europe you've got, you know, 
France and Germany and Italy and these different nations within the continent, you've got that within Australia as well. And, and all the, the, the wonderful nuances that, that come with that, you know, like in, you know, the English hate the French and the Germans hate the English and, and all these things, um, you know, play out over here as well. Um, rule one is number one, I think, is everyone hates the English. That's pretty much consistent. <laughs> um, so uh, uh, there, there's, there's, there's absolutely a need. And I would encourage, um, you know, people who are looking to get into or maybe you're already studying mining. Um, that you know, to 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 study mining doesn't mean you have to get a job in a mine. Um, and maybe people think that that you do, but it's absolutely not the case. There's there's jobs in government, and um, so there's a whole um, you know, whole arm of government which deals with uh, mining applications and approvals. There's jobs with indigenous corporations, and like I said, that is that is. There's a huge need there, and there is, and there is lots of opportunities there. Um, and then there's there's the particular work in mining companies dealing with communities. Now that allows openings for other people, so social scientists, um, you know, archaeologists, uh, anthropologists, psychologists. There's there's uh, I, I say to my kids, you know, you think of mining as just it's a truck and a digger. Uh, it's so much broader than that. Um, it's so so much broader than that, uh, and and it's a it's innovative and dynamic, and I think an industry that encourages well, no, it always has change, but I think it welcomes change as well. So if if people are thinking, um, well, I could get into this, I could study this line of work, and but work for a community organisation that's engaged with mining with a view to, um, um, I don't know, upping standards, if you like, or getting some kind of different outcome that you perceive that this is how it could be done better. I'd say go for it. Um, I, I think that would be welcome. Yeah, bottom line is that if, if, if you think something can be done, if you don't like the way something's done and think it can be done better, get in there and change it. And, and mining, a mining degree doesn't limit you to working in a mine. It's much, much more extensive than that. Yeah. Um, can you give us some examples of how relationships with indigenous uh, groups can affect a mining project? Yeah, yeah, sure. So uh, for all my rambling there, the, 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 the reality is this. Mining companies to a, a higher or lesser degree um, in Australia or in Western Australia need to engage with indigenous groups um, where there's native title in place. And more and more, there's, there's I guess, more social sort of um, expectations, values are changing in, in terms of how companies engage. So it might also be you've got pastoralists, you might have local shires. There's there's the community that needs to be engaged with, and and these are not soft issues. I think in the past maybe they were thought of as that that a, the engineers would optimise a project, go and get the approval for that. Um, you know, we've decided what it's going to be now, get it approved. It's it there's there's more interaction earlier on now about. Um, community inputs and values. Um, and like I said, it comes down to the relationship. There, there's some rules in place. Um, like I said, it's not a right of veto, but companies have to negotiate if it's for mining in what's called, they have to negotiate in good faith. That has a particular meaning. Like you can't turn up to a meeting and say, my negotiating position is I refuse to negotiate. You've actually got to make a genuine effort. Oh, you laugh. It has happened. <laughs> um, uh, um, you have to... You know, make a genuine effort to to try and reach an agreement. 
there's then arbitration and things like that can follow if not. But like, to give some examples, maybe some bookends, the longest negotiation that I'm aware of um, for a mining uh, project took uh, seven years. And that started off with a company driving around uh, the local town with a, um, and I'm not making this up, with a ute full of beer um, saying, who wants to sign this document? That's how, how they tried to get that project up. Now, obviously, that was just a disaster. Uh, and it's, you know, it was, I think, probably four years of just um, trying to trying to even get get a hearing uh, uh, where people would genuinely listen to what they had to say. It was, it was just a nightmare. So it, 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 it kind of worked out and some heads rolled along the way and kind of rightly so. But seven years, um, that's not something that, that you really want to put into your um, into your model, I suppose. Uh, the the quickest one. Oh no, let's go to a, a, an in between one next. So that um, I talked about companies not telling the truth. Um, it, again, it's, it's not rocket science, but you've got to you know if you're negotiating with a group, be upfront. Um, sometimes you might have to deliver a message that people don't want to hear or it's not well received. But it's much better that you do it than they find out afterwards or find out that you were were not being truthful that will backfire so a company um in the pill that was uh it was applying for a mining lease and it told the group that it was applying for a mining lease because it wanted to expand its waste dump now on the flight up to that meeting um on the in-flight magazine there was an article about this company and about how uh, their, their new mine development was going to increase the world supply of a particular speciality metal by 50 percent um, and we went to this meeting and the, uh, the director of the company was there. And this is a big listed company. And the group um, essentially just gave it to him. Their, their opening bid was, we want to expand the waste dump and we're going to offer you, and I'm just picking numbers here. So um, we're going to offer you, it's you know, $20,000. Um, we just want to make the waste dump bigger. The group just destroyed this poor director. Uh, actually got uh, reduced into tears um uh, he was they, they were lying it was simply that um long story short um the company had actually boxed themselves in they told the market they were starting mining in three months they thought they had some arbitration options which actually they didn't they hadn't thought it through properly and that um twenty thousand dollar we want to expend expand the waste dump um, offer turned into uh, a $10 million deal um, for a new mine. Um, and they, they just, they, it was, they just boxed themselves in and it was from not being, um, not being truthful. Now, like I said, this is, this is 15 years ago. I think we've moved on a fair bit from then. Uh, then the quickest mining agreement that uh, I've been involved in took two hours. Um, uh, and, and the company involved in that, is still reaping the benefits of that agreement. They're still operating under it. Uh, and again, that was that was about ten years ago now. Um, uh, two hours for a mining agreement. It, it, th th there's a backstory to it, and that was that the group, the company, actually went and built that relationship early. So when they were exploring, they were in there every meeting, saying, "This is what we're doing," um, or like I said, "There's nothing going on. Just want to let you know that there's nothing happening." Um, and they and over about two years, they probably built up the relationship. Now they they didn't have to go and meet with that that group then, um, but they they chose to. And I and, and obviously, 
I don't. I think there was maybe there was some philosophical argument at play, but more than that, it was. I think it was. It was. A, there was a business case. It was. It was simply that there was a business case to engage early, to build that relationship, to be known, um, to be. Um, uh, I guess ultimately welcomed by the community. So when it did come to applying for a mining lease, they got their agreement done in in two hours. Uh, uh, so I call that um, I call it the business case for for respect. And philosophy aside, um, I I am a hundred percent of the view that there that there is there is that business case to engage early um, uh, will pay will pay dividends. And 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 um, the other course of, um, I guess, wait till the last minute or um, hope it'll be all right or just try and fudge it is is just kind of fraught with danger. Yeah. Um, obviously, the destruction of the Ducan George Rock shelters made headline news around the world last year. Um, can you tell us about the impact that has had within Australia? Yeah, so the two can. But first of all, I have to say up front, I have done some uh, some work with the group involved there, so I, I, I'm not going to get into any of the detail of, of that. But to the extent it's impacted on the broader industry, and and uh, and to the extent things are on the public record, I mean, certainly it's that has been, I think, uh, the biggest uh, the biggest moment in my career um, in terms of the impact on the industry. That's what I mean. It it it, it was. I mean, from any perspective, it was just a, a disaster for all concerned. And the fallout of that, I, I don't know how it was, I guess, overseas, but in WA, the, the, it was an interesting reaction. It was a rare moment of kind of, I think, unity um, in, in the population that, that it was kind of like, I think for most people, it's like, oh, no, no, that's, that's just not on. That is not on. Um, and a fair bit of anger as well um, uh, that, that, that this had occurred. Um, it felt like there were then ripples that went out from that um, overseas, but also like the investor community over here. The investment community then sort of seemed to come back and apply pressure back onto the companies. The government uh, instigated a, a, a federal Senate inquiry. Uh, that's still ongoing. There's been a, an interim report, but there's a there's a I guess a bigger report coming. Um, and the the impact on the ground has been tangible, and and it's kind of. I'm still wondering where the where where everything's going to end up. It feels like you've sort of the flotsam still falling down from it, so to speak. Um, and we're a year down the track now. So the immediate things was um, uh, you've got there's a there's a much higher level of um, diligence around um, uh, identification of heritage um, um, and protection. Uh, and mitigating impacts, and it's you know my work, and I think lots of people in this field um, has kind of just gone through the the roof. I look combined with COVID as well, because when we've had COVID-free windows, it's a case of get out there and do your work. Um, but going out and um, doing uh, more higher level, more uh, intense surveys, going and checking areas, checking areas again, um, indirect impacts from mining. For example, you may have a rock shelter. Um, that has uh, some significance, but it might be, let's say it's 100 metres away from the pit. Um, okay, on paper, it's it's not impacted, but are there blast vibrations? Is that rock shelter geotechnically stable? You've got to go and do a geotech assessment. Going back out with the group, saying, you know, it's 100 metres away, we think it's okay. 
what what are your thoughts on that? So I guess what I've seen is companies pulling their their socks up a lot and and a bit of nervousness around it as well, um, because in, in the indigenous groups uh, are flexing their muscle as well, uh, and that's a combination of many things coming together. You've got people are now they've got their you know groups are getting their land rights. They are um, often the groups are, are are not wanting for lack of resources. They are they're, they're sophisticated. They're strategic. Um, you've also had there was the Black Lives Matter movement last uh, last year. Um, all these things sort of come together, and, and groups have, have sort of you know. In, in the past, I've seen uh, government has been very supportive of, of groups and indigenous groups' right to say yes. Um, but not wanting a bar of an Indigenous group's right to say no. And I'm sensing um, uh, groups now are, are saying, no, we're, we're prepared to stand up to this more. Um, so it's resulting in initially a lot more field work, a lot more checking, double-checking, and kind of re-optimising of, of projects. My view is you can you can move everything apart from an ore body. So roads, waste dumps, you know, uh, being redesigned to... Uh, avoid impacts to avoid buffers on impacts just to, to to i guess to document you're doing everything you possibly can to avoid heritage areas now what if there's a heritage area in the middle of a pit you know that then that creates you know some difficult discussions uh, and at the moment i kind of sense there's a little bit of people just sitting back um, and not wanting to to push that button right now waiting to see where where the dust settles other things, in fact, we've got legislative change in Western Australia. The, the Heritage Act, like I said, um, is not perceived as protecting Aboriginal heritage. And that's been in changes that has been on the cards for a long time. Um, and then Jucan came along at kind of the tail end of that process and just put a, a you know, took the blowtorch to the issue. Um, so I, look, I'm off to a forum tomorrow where there's going to be talking about latest changes of the Act. We're expecting that to go through this year. I'm still not certain what it's going to look like, but but uh, Indigenous groups are going to have a much higher say than they than they currently have. Um, no question. So I mean, yeah, but they, like I said, these are not these are not soft issues. Um, how we how we model resources, I think that's going to be impacted. So in Australia, there's a thing called the Jortco Joint or Reserve Committee. It's kind of a rule for for geos and engineers, so there's consistency of reporting. So, you know, when when someone goes off shift, you don't start calling things different different stuff. So it defines how you how you um, uh, categorize mineral resources, how you convert those to reserves, which is the bit that you can you know extract at a profit. And these are important requirements for companies that are on the stock market about how they report things. Now, the jaw code is going through review at the moment. Um, and uh, uh, one of the things in there is what's called the, the reasonableness test. So the, the current JORC code, I'm sorry, I get a bit technical here, says uh, a mineral resource, which is essentially you know, anomalous mineralization in the ground that you've identified from exploration, there's something there. Um, to convert that to a reserve, you know, the portion of the, reserve, of the resource that you can extract to the profit, it's not simply uh, an engineering calculation. It's not tons grade, can I dig it? Yes, you can. Sorry, I couldn't resist that one. Um, uh, it's, you've got to bring in what are called modified, modifying factors. Um, 
which would be uh, environmental, um, social heritage comes into that. Um, the bottom line is this, to convert something to a reserve, uh, the competent person um, who makes that, that call has to, uh, has to be able to demonstrate that, um, and I quote, that extraction can reasonably be justified. Now, that, that to me throws up a value judgment, and I'm sure you, you, know, you could argue to the cows come home about what that means, but can, if you've got a 46,000-year-old site with you know, evidence of occupation through the last ice age that's deemed to be one of the top five in the, in the Pilbara and, 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 can, can mining of that be reasonably justified? Uh, uh, that there's there's a there's a huge argument to be had there. So that the jaw code is in is 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 being reviewed. Some companies now have have amended their reserve statements to take out um, areas of uh, with heritage sites on them. Um, so it, it's like I said, it's not soft. This is this is a very relevant issue, and we'll we'll see where the jaw code lands. But potentially, um, uh, um, heritage will be a defining factor in, in, in what can and, and can't be mined. Um, uh, so uh, what else? So legislative change, um, impacts to, um, uh, to the company. I, I, th I think maybe, uh, maybe this is looking a long, long way ahead. Um, you've got these kind of ripples across the ocean and, and it's, there's international issues now with other companies. Where I think um, where I think this is all heading towards is um, different approaches to mine development. Some of the mines that that we're dealing with here, this is not um, one pit in a waste dump. You're talking like mega mining provinces. They are they are like little countries, um, airports, thousands of um, workers, uh, and you know it, it's almost the case of We'll start at one end of the mountain range, and we'll see you at the other end in a hundred years. You know, these are mega, mega projects, and I think there uh, that that maybe a change in approach that um, engineers will balk at this, but maybe a more kind of town planning approach. And let me explain: in that, if you're building a city, you don't concrete from one side to the other. You leave some gaps. You leave some public open space. You leave a bit. You know, there's some water courses, um, and I think that will come more into into mining as these social values infuse decision making that you can still make doesn't mean you still can't make squillions and squillions of dollars don't get me wrong um, but there'll be some 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 bits will be left um, and those will be left because they've got particular values that are that are deemed worth protecting and that will be yes that will lose some ore here yes but it will mean that the project can develop um, you know over here so some other area. Um, uh, the last, I guess, what I call the the Jukan factor is is this. It's it's um, uh, what I've seen in, in companies is that decisions are made. Uh, this is my experience at the at the top. It's it's a it's a by you know the engineering discipline mainly, and when people feed into that. Experts feed their their information and advice in, but it goes up the top, and then there's a there's a key decision maker, and some of the stuff we're dealing with. Um, these issues are, are are intangible and I think hard to measure. I mean, how do you how do you put in a financial model reputational risk? How do you 
model um, in, uh, intangible impacts. I, I kind of think uh, that, that, that the, the current process kind of struggles to get its head around those kind of things. And I don't know what the answer is here, but, but I think you know, that there's, there's disciplines that have influence to a certain level within, within a company, and then the ultimate decision maker, it, it's made on, uh, uh, you know, on, on, on their values, which is, well, I'm looking at the project, I'm looking at the return for the shareholders, um, and my engineer's hat says, this is what we're going to do. Now that you can, um, with the benefit of hindsight, you know that that has had massive impacts on the, the company involved. I don't know how you value that reputational risk. Massive impacts on uh, on the industry as a whole. I mean, kind of ironically, has probably done more for Indigenous land rights in Australia than twenty years of Indigenous advocacy has ever done as well. Um, I mean, it was just. It was just clearly such a, a disastrous thing to happen for everyone, um, but it, it got through. It was a result, I guess, of the current process. So I think there's going to be um, it, it's it's some some big changes coming. Okay, I've got two more questions. What do you see as the future of Indigenous groups working with mine, mining companies in Australia, sort of in in the future? Yeah. Okay. So, like I said, the, the groups now. What I'm seeing is they are, um, you know, some are well organised, certainly um, well funded. Some of them, and, uh, and this is you know as a result of doing uh, agreements with mining companies. And by by well funded, I mean you know, there's groups that have you know we're talking groups that have you know in the hundreds of millions of dollars. Now, this is these are in trust, and the, and there's very strict rules about how they use, but but um, um, what I'm seeing is groups, they go through the hard yards of getting native title, and that is a pretty, that's a hard process, and, and, and people you know, have died along the way. It's, 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 it's a stressful, unpleasant thing. Um, now starting to find their feet and guess reestablish themselves and, and their, their ability to, um, uh, to, to have a say in, in land development in their regions, almost, almost kind of like pseudo-councils. Uh, and now the next step is looking ahead to, well, what's the what's the future look like, and how do we invest into that, and how do we control it? So, a few things. Um, firstly, um, the current system uh, there is a weight of there's the weight of government, there's the weight of history, there's the weight of industry. Kind of um, all roads lead to Rome. It's like I said, there's no right of veto for indigenous groups, um, and and they are. Um, up against um, um, a machine in many instances. What I think will happen, and some groups have started to dip their toe in the water with this, is actually flip the process on its head. Rather than waiting for a mining company to apply for a tenement, and then you start talking with them and try to broker the best deal you can under a, under a kind of you know, pretty limited system, turn it around completely, and actually Indigenous groups go out and start pegging tenements. Um, building up a portfolio and going and knocking on doors down in Perth and saying, this is who we are. These are our, this is our, our these are the tenements we've held. These are our values. This is our principles. Do you want to work with us? Um, you know, come in as a partner, um, um, farming, whatever it may be. Uh, it's, it's kind of um, almost kind of commercializing uh, a little bit the, the, the rights that you have. 
what that does is it puts the indigenous groups in in the driving seat and it and it uses all that weight that's traditionally been against them to work for them so i'm actually i'm i'm excited and optimistic about when this starts to happen because i mark my words it is the future and and these groups have the potential to be a formidable force in the mining industry like make no doubt about it you know if if a group is taking on um rio's former ceo onto its board you know you, you that they're, they're not doing this just for a feel-good exercise. This is, you know, that they they I believe will be a serious player in this industry. And I and I absolutely welcome that. That's going to be a really exciting time. And I know lots of companies in Perth who would welcome that as well. You would 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 be thrilled to have a group come and knock on the door and say, how can we work with you? So that's one thing. Um that's one thing I'm I'm looking forward to. Um the other one is, you know, we talk about mining uh or the resources industry obviously it's you've got mining resources you have petroleum resources and the new one for wa's um uh renewable resources um i mean the potential there is is huge and what do you need for renewable resources it, it's land and sunlight and we have that in abundance here it's kind of i kind of sense that maybe wa is going to get dragged kicking and screaming into the next century but um and we'll get there eventually. I remember in Amsterdam a few years ago catching a taxi, and it was a Tesla, which I was super excited about until I found out that all the taxis in Amsterdam are Teslas. Um, uh, and the guy was explaining to me, here are the free charging stations and all that. This was, what, six, seven years ago? Um, I think there is a renewable resources boom coming, and, and I think there's the positioning is, is starting for that already. Um, but... It's going to be about the land and who has who has land rights over vast areas of sunny land um, in Australia. It's it's indigenous groups. So um, I'm aware of a couple of pretty big projects there where um, that partnership arrangement is there from day dot. So so these uh, groups aren't negotiating deals to get you know, the best they can, which has traditionally been the case. They're actually in there as founding members, equity partners um, um, in these businesses. And, and that's something, uh, again, that, um, that I absolutely welcome. Um, it's, you know, uh, what, why wouldn't you? It, it's, it's, it's your land. You want to be in the driving seat. Yeah. Um, and lastly, how would you sum up the last, uh, the mining industries, obviously dealing with indigenous groups over the last sort of 20 years, obviously since you've been involved in um obviously this this area of native title yeah well it's it's funny day to day you kind of you get ups and downs and uh, and sometimes wonder like oh gee am i actually doing any good here but if, when i look back over 20 years the change has has been just massive uh, and when i talk to new people coming into this industry i kind of stress that like things don't change and evolve overnight um i i'm i came into this line of work with a desire, and I think this is most people in, in any job, you've got a desire of, you know, I, I want to do the best I can and, and and to see things done done better for whatever that means. So when I started in, in, in this area, the kind of, we were aspiring to to normalise um, the kind of things that we're seeing now. So give you an example, heritage surveys, there was a desire to, to normalise that level of engagement, to make it a normal part of doing business, which it absolutely is now. Um, so there's been... Uh, there's been huge change. I think the industry, you know, I mentioned the Black Hand campaign earlier. I actually think the industry has gone from, you know, there's been an opposition to um, 
uh, you know, to some you know, begrudging acceptance, and we're now moving into its cooperation and collaboration. So I actually think it's a good news story there. The I definitely would say the mining industry is kind of light years ahead of where government is in, in terms of its dealings with indigenous groups. Um, uh, there is, uh, you know, the engagement that happens is 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 regular. Um, people are, are are very involved in uh, in decision making and and you know involved in working out um, on these sites and, and not just at a, at a junior level. I, I worked on a project up in the Kimberley where we had fifty percent indigenous employment. And people working their way up to um, um, to supervisors, and it was at the level of you know, if we were laying pipe, we'd say, well, it's got to get from over there to over there. It's your land, you guys, you you, you work it out. You tell us how you want it done. Um, so look, it's come on, um, it's come on light years. It's it's like I said, it's had ups and downs. There's there's opportunities abound. Uh, I'd like to think that maybe what um, what we do in Australia can have some application elsewhere. And look, I'm not I'm not hundred percent on on rules in other countries, but I think that you know, like the kind of approach that we have, you could you could pretty much you know cut and paste and and, and take to other places. Uh, um, I had a trip to just before COVID. I had a trip to India for a few weeks and got to see some mines over there. Um, gee whiz, that was an eye opener. Um, you know, to see people. Um, uh, um, loading rock then you know people standing through a rock breaker in saris and thongs picking rocks up you know just basic stuff like i don't know where all the ppe goes here after it's used but gee uh, you know people working in a mine in a pair of flip-flops was just kind of beyond me um so so i think there's there's things we do here which is and again i mentioned at the beginning it's not rocket science going and talking to communities um uh uh, it, it's kind of you know applicable everywhere. I, 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 another example: a trip to Canada a few years ago. I talked to a group there and was saying, you know, uh, "What happens when a company wants to explore?" And they said, uh, "Oh, we get a letter." Um, and then I went and we met with the, the equipment of the mines department over there, and I said, "Is that right? They just you know, just get a letter?" And they said, "Oh, yes, yes, yes." But but we, we're going to well, at the moment, you know, there we encourage people send a letter but we're going to change that soon and they're going to have to send a letter uh, and i thought oh goodness me um it's um th th there's things that perhaps we take for granted in australia um that, that just don't happen elsewhere and i think it would be quite easy just you know you could you could apply that and and, and take it overseas but like, like i said it's it's evolving continually i'd like to think in 20 years time um you know the next generation will look back and be having similar conversations, sort of rolling their eyes and be saying, "Gee, I can't believe they did that back then." But this is this is the mining industry. It's it's, I think it's kind of thrived on on its ability to evolve and change. I don't see that as a as a bad thing at all. I think it's um, I think it's welcome and kind of key to its success. You know. Mm. Rick, really appreciate your time. Um, obviously, give us, uh, giving our audience a uh, overview of native title, uh, some of the challenges that companies are facing. And um, it seems to me, from obviously hearing from you, it is about relationship building, breaking down those barriers. And like you said, it's the perception of people thinking they need lawyers. It's a, it's a lot of law and and like you said, it's probably more simple than that. It is actually going and speaking to these landowners, 
and um, just showing your intentions and seeing how you can work with them. So it seems pretty more realistic and a, a little bit more down to earth approach. And um, so I really appreciate you um, obviously giving your uh, views and advice. You've been doing this for 20 years. So if our audience at all wants to reach out to you, if they've got any questions, um, how can they go about doing that? Are you on any social media? Uh, okay, so I'm on um, I'm on LinkedIn, and I've got the um, email and uh, the website. Um, uh, that is as far as my social media skills go. Um, but LinkedIn would be the the best one, or or, or email. Yeah, well, we can put those in the show notes accompanying this uh, podcast, anyway. So. Um, um, the audience appreciate you listening. Um, I'm sure you've probably got quite a few questions or concerns or even just queries that um, that you may want to reach out to Rick around native title and it, whether it's issues that you've um, that you're currently dealing with or you may have um, dealt with in the past that you just wanted to a sort of clarification around. So um, no doubt um, Rick can maybe give uh, his advice on advice on that. So. Um, Appreciate you for li- appreciate you guys for listening. Hope you can share this episode uh, around uh, other people within the mining industry um, because I think it obviously it's an important important part of the mining industry and it's only gonna it's obviously only gonna uh, increase um, as we move forward into hopefully a commodity super cycle. So um, yeah, appreciate you guys for listening. Thank you again, Rick. Appreciate your um, appreciate your input. And until next time, happy mining. Thank you for listening. Remember to reach out to Rob via the show notes and be sure to subscribe and leave a review. Until next time, happy mining, helping each other to improve the mining industry.